This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Jim Stroud, and this is my podcast. Don't let employee lawsuits kill your company. That's the advice of Matthew Grable, the author of The Employee Lawyer's Playbook. We had a very good conversation. Actually, I think it was a little short. Hopefully, I can have him come back one day. Um, But when I say an interesting conversation, (laughs) here's a a snippet of what I mean. People aren't verbalizing their desires or their discriminatory, you know, animus towards others. They're actually putting it in text and social media sites. So you'll see, um, and I saw plenty of cases where a supervisor would, um, you know, send a sexually harassing uh, text or email or other social media post to a, a female employee or a male employee for that matter. And that's what I mean by that. Those kind of errors, everything is in writing these days. Mm. And uh, believe it or not, Jim, excuse me courts around this country and judges if you are accused of discriminatory harassing behavior or retaliatory behavior and there's evidence that you use texting or social media they will order the other side the employee lawyer like myself the ability to get your texts and social media postings and emails and facebook's for the past year or two now, what? I don't think anybody wants that. What? I, yeah. Really? Yeah. If, even if it's so it wouldn't just be social media that was created during work hours, so to speak, or it, it, oh, anything no. in my personal social media, they can pull. No, everything. <laughs> if you want to protect your company from employee lawsuits, you must listen to this episode that will begin right after this. The Recruiting Life is a newsletter that gives a quirky view on the world of work and aspires to educate, entertain, and inspire with articles, comics, podcasts, videos, and more. It is produced on a weekly basis by yours truly, Jim Stroud, and is supported by readers like you. Topics in this newsletter include the future of work, current labor trends, the impact of AI on the recruitment industry, and more. Subscribe now and receive it every Monday in your email by going to jimstroud.beehive.com. That URL is jimstroud.beehive.com. A link is in the podcast description. Don't wait. Subscribe now. Operators are standing by. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Jim Stroud Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Special guest. Tell us, who are you? And what do you do? My name is Matthew Grable. I've been an employment lawyer for over 27 years, and I do employment law training in a live format to corporations around the country. And I recently wrote a book called The Employee Lawyer's Playbook, 
the top 10 mistakes that employers make that plaintiff lawyers will seek to exploit. And I hmm. include in that book real case examples and uh, of each of the uh, errors that employers make. Is that available on Amazon? It is available on Amazon. Good question. It was actually a bestseller <laughs> on Amazon in the first week. I was thrilled and excited. So very yes, nice. We're, we're doing well. Very nice. What inspired you to write it? Well, that's a good question. A lot of things inspired me to write this book. Um, you know, employee lawyers have what's called a playbook of a plan of attack, so to speak, uh, where they want to attack the company, the managers, other employees, statements, documents, and so forth in order to increase the value of the settlement or the verdict at trial. Mm. How do I know this? Because like I said, I was an employee lawyer for over 27 years suing companies. So now I try to turn the table. I've kind of switched teams uh, because I saw so many managers and executives make stupid mistakes, mm. um, various mistakes over and over again. And I said to myself, the training that these companies are providing is obviously not doing the trick. So I thought it would be a good idea to switch teams and give the perspective of training from the employee lawyer that used to sue them. And that's what I have done. So uh, I've incorporated uh, that uh, that uh, strategy into my live training sessions. And I now have a book uh, to also uh, use as a takeaway uh, to any client that uh, hires me to do training. Can you um, briefly explain the, the top 10 mistakes employers make that plaintiff attorneys seek to exploit? Sure. It's detailed, obviously more detailed in the book, uh, but the top 10 um, in no specific order uh, is unfamiliar unfamiliarity with policies and procedures or the mm -hmm. law. Um, mm -hmm. And that sounds simple, but a lot of managers are not familiar with the policies that an employee will come to me and say, hey, they violated this policy and I want to know why. And, you know, to, to start off before we even get into this uh, or continue with this, um, you have to know that employers can take any action against an at-will employee that they want to, except they can't take action for a discriminatory reason, such as based upon age, sex, race, religion, disability, marital status, pregnancy. Those are protected characteristics. So to go back to my first example, unfamiliarity with policies and procedures, there are a lot of people that would come to me and say, you know, hey, my manager violated this uh, policy by not uh, doing, uh, you know, progressive discipline, for example, and mm -hmm. I don't know why. And then if I if I got into questioning, I would find out that they recently had an accommodation request for disability or they were the only African-American in their group or they just had a 65th birthday, something that triggered one of those protected characteristics or they just became pregnant, something like that. So that would make an employee lawyer like me ask a lot of questions if if a company was unfamiliar, unfamiliar with the policies, procedures of the law. The next one that I cover is erroneous or non-existent documentation of personnel decisions. Again, that sounds simple, but uh, you can't imagine how many times I have gone through performance reviews or other documents in a file and there are inconsistent statements in there or yeah. there, are, there are missing documents altogether. There's no performance review or disciplinary review. And what I like to say, if the uh, employment decision is not in writing, it didn't happen. So I, I'd like to train my companies on that uh, when I tell them, be honest and put it in writing so that you have a record. The next one would be performance review puffery. 
And you may say, what does that mean? Well, there are plenty of uh, managers that when they fill out a performance review, they put in only positives and they may even enhance those positives and for various reasons. But then sure enough, a month, three months, six months later, they fire that individual. And the excuse that they give is poor performance, even though they're hiding a discriminatory reason. So when I go through that performance review and I say to the manager at his deposition, why did you uh, rate this person so highly? Uh, I'll get different excuses. Well, I wanted them to get their year end bonus, but I was just trying to be nice. You know, verbally, I told them that they needed to improve and so forth. That's a big error, big mistake. Mm. The next one will be an inadequate response to an initial complaint. And by that, I mean, when an employee does come to human resources or to any manager or supervisor with a complaint about uh, discrimination or harassment, you have to take it seriously and you have to respond. Um, The legal term is, you know, in a prompt and effective manner in order to, uh, you know, remediate the issue. So that's what's litigated, whether it's prompt and effective. So could it be prompt and effective if it's done within that same day or 24 hour period? Sure, that would be prompt. Uh, but, you know, a lot of companies will say or managers will say, you know, oh, you know, Jim uh, touched you in that way or Joe touched you in that way. Uh, he does that to everybody. He hugs everybody or he touches it. Get back to work or, you know, I'm not your babysitter. You know, we have a project that's due and they don't address the complaint uh, in a prompt and effective manner. And that's a huge error. Mm. Inconsistent statements in response to a claim is another one. And by that, I mean. A lot of times an employee will file a claim either with the human resource department or outside with an agency such as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And normally in those situations, the company does not hire an attorney to handle that because the employee can go there for free without an attorney. And they normally will have a manager or human resource person answer the questions and deny that there's been any uh, discrimination going on. Well, I, I, those. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was just going to interject there for a quick second. As you were saying these different things, I was thinking to myself that um, it's it's very expensive <laughs> when a disgruntled employee um, files a complaint against an employer. What makes it so so expensive? Is it just a legal fee cost? Or I'm just curious. Well, that's a good question. There. Yeah. For 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 an employee to go to an agency, whether it's a state agency or the EEOC federal agency, there's no charge to the employee. But if the the company wants to use their attorney, their in-house attorney or outside counsel, then it will start to obviously run up a bill. So my point in this error, in pointing out this error, is a lot of times with the agency response, the company will not hire somebody and the human resource person will answer the questions. And that creates a document uh, path that later, if there's not a resolution, the employee then gets the option to file a lawsuit. And a lot of times that's when I will get called in mm. and I will look at the documents that were submitted to the EEOC, for example. And I might ask similar questions during discovery of the case, which is now maybe a year or two later, believe it or not. And I will see totally different statements made, inconsistent statements made that were made to the EEOC versus what's made to me in terms of reasons for termination or disciplinary issues, but things like that. And those kind of inconsistent statements raise a red flag every time to a judge or a jury. 
it looks like the company's making something up, right? It looks yeah. like they're just faking it. Um, so to answer, go back to your question though, Jim, which is a good one. Mm-hmm. It does get expensive for a company because if you think about it, when they have to hire a firm to uh, represent them, the firm normally takes a retainer. They don't work on a contingency like an employee lawyer does. Yep. So they take the retainer. That could be several thousand dollars. And it's against hours that are put in. As soon as those hours are used up, they ask for another retainer and another retainer. This could be ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars, and then they have to go through the discovery process and motions and court dates and talking to witnesses and securing statements. It can be very expensive, and this is what companies many, many times will underestimate the value—not just of the money part of it, but the time loss and the morale to the whole company. Right. They have to stop what they're doing. They, they're not productive anymore. Now they're responding to Jim Stroud's you know, complaint that they think is B.S., but they have to respond to it and, and you know, answer all these questions and court dates and so forth. So it, beca- it becomes very, very expensive, not just money, but um, morale. Yeah, so, I, I see. It. So it's really the, the expression announced of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure is really to a company's uh, benefit to sort of squash these things to everyone's um, uh, satisfaction quickly and early. Which is which is why I, I like to say that my training coming from the perspective of the employee's attorney should help do that. Because if, if people follow my steps that I, that I go through in the training and in this book, when an attorney like me takes the case and they are, start seeing the documents and the and the support for the company's position as the months go on, they're going to drop the case because they're going to see, hey, you know, we don't have a winning case here anymore. This company did everything properly. And mm-hmm. that's the position I want to put companies in with my training and this book. Now, you've been practicing employment law for 27 years, give or take. Uh, have you seen the landscape of employee lawsuits evolve over time? You know, the things that happened maybe early in your career don't happen yeah. so much now, maybe more so now. Yeah, I have. That's a good question, too. Um, when I first started this years ago and I started getting into employment law, um, I used to talk to my adversaries, the defense attorneys, whether it was at a deposition or uh, after, you know, uh, motions were made. And you would be able to talk to the person and say, you know, look, this is positives on my side. These are positives on your side. I know I have to deal with this negative. You have to deal with that negative. Let's try to talk this through, shake hands and figure out a way to make everybody happy before this gets out of hand. Very rarely do you see that anymore today. Uh, It's a very much adversarial process. Uh, I'm not proud of that. But my goal, again, in, in trying to bring a different perspective to companies uh, through the training and through this book is to minimize that adversarial process and hopefully get people back to where they're they're talking things through and resolving it early before it's too costly and time consuming. Is the uh, you mentioned in your book uh, the fear of uh, employee lawsuits among executives? Everybody's afraid of lawsuits. Uh, what's driving that fear? Is it is is it just the um, economical impact or is it? Uh, Morale? I mean, what do we think? Why are most executives afraid of a lawsuit? Well, many times, many, many executives and companies are afraid of this because for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are many states now have individual liability. So it used to be that an employee would sue 
the, you heard the term deep pockets. They would sue the deep pockets, which is the company. Yeah. Now, many statutes in, in various states allow the employee to sue the individual as well. So instead of just suing a company, I can sue the manager who caused me my grief. And really? That, that you can imagine with your raised eyebrows, Jim, that uh, <laughs> that, will cause, that will cause plenty of fear. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking that employees only sue the company. So, wow, nope. I didn't know you can get down to the uh, actual manager. You can get individual liability. And the worst part about that is uh, if there is enough evidence of the individual taking action on their own, discriminatory or retaliatory action on their own, the company will distance themselves from that individual. In other words, they might not pay for their defense. So now that individual has to get their own attorney, pay their own retainer that I talked about before, which could be tens of thousands of dollars. And that is where it gets expensive. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Now, is, is that something that can, because um, that can impact someone's career, I imagine, because if you are doing a background check on someone or you're calling for references, that kind of thing will, will come up. Yeah. If I call the company about, I don't know, Joe Schmo, uh, HR manager, and I say, you know what, I've I've heard some interesting things about this manager. What can you tell me about him? The company is going to just basically give name, rank, and serial number, right? And are, are they obliged to say this person was involved in a lawsuit? They're definitely not obliged to do that. In every case that I have ever had that had a settlement, um, part of the settlement agreement is that for the employee, at least, they will only give uh, dates of employment and last position held. For a supervisor or manager that was on the wrong end of a lawsuit that was being sued, uh, if the lawsuit was actually filed, that's a public document, Jim. So there's very little to hide behind. Once the lawsuit's filed, that's a public document. You can go to the courthouse where you live mm-hmm. and Google and Google, you know, and, and uh, not Google, but search the files for somebody's name to see if they have any lawsuits against them. And you might see some, you know, car accidents, but you might see an employee lawsuit and then wow. you might not want to hire them. Do do Does the average background check? Um, involve that as far as looking yeah, court? court it research? will. Okay. Okay. It will have it, it'll, the back, average background check will show criminal records and court records uh, and documents, depending on how in depth uh, a, a, a new company wants to go in terms of the reference. Mm, that is, uh, huh, that, okay, I can see why that can be very scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, something else you mentioned in your book, too uh, quick trigger termination. Uh, what is that and why is it a common error for supervisors? Yeah, that's another that's, that's one of the other errors I didn't I didn't get to yet because we uh, talked about some other very good questions that you brought up. But a quick trigger termination means uh, many times a supervisor, if they're holding some type of discriminatory animus towards somebody, they want to fire that person. Right. Maybe they weren't involved in the hiring process um, or maybe they were. But something came up like pregnancy or you know, a religious accommodation or disability or something of that nature. And they want to get rid of this person. So they might, uh, as soon as they, as soon as that person is five minutes late, they might quickly pull the trigger and fire that person. You know, you, you came in late. Mm-hmm. This is your third day time coming in late, as opposed to checking with human resources first. That's what I mean by quick trigger. They make the firing decision right away without checking with human resources. And if they had checked with human resources, they might find that, you know, maybe this person had an accommodation to come in a little bit late because they have a, a disability that makes them 
you know, delayed in the mornings, or, you know, maybe they're pregnant and they, had a, they have to see their doctors, whoever, whatever the reason is, the quick trigger termination just means a supervisor acts too quickly without discussing it with others in the company to make sure that he's on safe grounds to do so. Even if it's a, an at-will state? Even if it's an at-will state, because let's say the person has the disability, or let's say mm. the person made a complaint about the supervisor a week ago and the company was ready to, you know, going to do an investigation, but the supervisor then fires the employee. Now that could be seen as retaliation for that person making uh, the complaint. Yeah. Right. And yeah. the complaint could have been age, sex, race, religion, or disability. I'm not, I'm not talking Jim about complaints, you know, that somebody stole my pencil. I'm talking about complaints, you know, of discriminatory or uh, harassing conduct where the company has an obligation, a legal obligation to do an investigation. And the, and the supervisor takes it upon him or herself to pull the trigger on that termination before checking with the rest of the company. So one of the one of the other areas of your top ten that, that I didn't get to let you get to, which I probably should have, was on texting and social media errors. Right. So talk to me a little bit about that. How can employers navigate uh, electronic communication to avoid legal pitfalls around texting and social media? Because those social media errors, I, I'm thinking nowadays. Like I, I heard this. Um, there's one podcast, um, Tim Cast, Tim Pool, right? And he was talking about how some people were fired because they were pro Hamas, I think it was, and they were being belligerent in the workplace, and they were posting things about about their coworkers on social media. Big mess, big mess, big mess. So, how can companies sort of get around that? Because it's going to be something political tomorrow. It always will be. What can you counsel employers on that? Well, there's two two aspects of this. Number one is from the supervisor's perspective, using texting and social media. And what I like to say when in my training is that when I started in this business, um, <clears throat> we used to use the term, he said, she said. I'm sure you've mm -hmm. heard of that, Jim, yeah. and your audience members. Mm -hmm. And that simply meant that, you know, one person said one thing, another person said another. And it's a, it's a toss up as to who you believe. Well, nowadays with texting and social media, people aren't verbalizing their desires or their discriminatory, you know, animus towards others, they're actually putting it in texts and social media sites. So you'll see, um, and I saw plenty of cases where a supervisor would, um, you know, send a sexually harassing uh, text or email or other social media post to a, a female employee or a male employee for that matter. And that's what I mean by that, those kind of errors, everything is in writing these days. Mm. And uh, believe it or not, Jim, excuse me, courts around this country and judges, if you are accused of discriminatory, harassing behavior or retaliatory behavior, and there's evidence that you use texting or social media, they will order the other side, the employee lawyer like myself, the ability to get your texts and social media postings and emails and Facebooks for the past year or two. Now, what? I don't think anybody wants that. What? I, yeah. Really? Yeah. If, even if it's so it wouldn't just be social media that was created during work hours, so to speak, or it, it, oh, anything no. in my personal social media, they could pull. No, everything. If you're accused of something heinous, like discrimination or yeah. sexual harassment, a judge may order your phone to be turned over and your text messages and all your emails from your home computer server. 
Wow. Right. To find out because you may have been sending these messages from home or, wow. and, and that's the allegation. And to answer your other side about how can we, how, how can they protect about like political postings mm-hmm. and things like that? There are no protections for an employee when they post something on their own social media site and the employer finds out about it. So for example, you use the example of being pro Hamas mm-hmm. or any political thing, pro Trump. Mm-hmm. If somebody posts something on uh, a website and the employer finds out about it and doesn't think it agree that, that it is in agreement with the company's philosophy or the, or the um, message that the company wants to put out, you can be terminated. You can be terminated for that. Most people are turned in, by the way, by their quote unquote friends on Facebook, right? Because I might see what Jim posts at night and I go and tell, you know, tattletale on you. Hey, did you see what Jim posted last night? And that's how you get in trouble. The only protection for the employee is under the National Labor Relations Board, um, uh, where if it's protected and concerted activity. So if you have a post that is protected, meaning it has to do with bettering the terms and conditions of employment, and it's concerted, meaning in concert with other employees, that's protected. So if I were to write on my social media one night, uh, you know, uh, you know, we, we haven't gotten a raise in five years. I think we should get together and talk to uh, the owner of the company about getting a raise. That's protected, right? Because it's protected concerted activity. You're talking about bettering the terms and conditions of employment. But if I just go on and I write something uh, political or anything, it could be any statement at all. If it's not to better the terms and conditions of employment for you and other employees, it's not protected and you can be terminated. That is interesting. So <laughs> let me, let me, let me sort of, wow. So if I were writing about, let's say I worked at Starbucks and I say, we need to start a union and other people say, yeah, we should start a union. Then I'm, then that's, that's okay. Even though that might Holy. be a little ten- tension at the, at the workplace, but it's still protected. But if I were to say, uh, this year I'm going to vote for Biden or this year I'm going to vote for Trump and the management um, is on the other side of the political aisle and they decide to fire me because of what I posted. Um, I can't do anything about it if I'm in an at will state, I'd imagine. Um, and there's no recourse for me. Well, well, when you talk about political views, that's that brings in something else because the, you have First Amendment rights to free speech, but that's only if that's only for the government to be protected. So if it's a private, if you're talking about Starbucks and it's a private employer, mm-hmm. you have no protection. The, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private employers. People think that does. You know, oh, I have a First Amendment right. I can say whatever I want. That's not true. If you're, if the owner of your company disagrees with anything that you say or anything that you post or any sign that you put up, you can be terminated. And I can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about it. And, and that's, only, but is that only in at will states or anywhere? Yeah, anywhere. Anywhere. Hmm. You have to be careful. That, that's the one, what your reaction is very typical to every reaction I do in trainings when I bring up the, the, the topic of the social media sites. People do not understand that. And I have to give example over example of people that were terminated for putting up, you know, what they thought were just innocuous statements uh, on their social media. But if the company finds out about it, doesn't agree with what you're writing, um, you could be terminated. What if you are posting things on uh, Instagram 
and your account is private. So you're assuming that you're only sharing it with friends and family, um, but one of your friends and family narks on you <laughs> to your employer. Uh, and, I, and the person could lose their job, would they have a legal recourse then or? No, what, what, one of the examples I use in my training mm. um, goes to that typical situation. And what you need to understand, what everybody listening needs to understand, when you put something on the internet, you should have zero expectation of privacy. Zero. Mm. One of the examples. One of the examples I used was um, at a restaurant, uh, Houston's, which is Hillstone in some states, and Houston's in other states. Um, and the employees started a, a social media account for only employees to have access to, and they gave passwords to only the employees. And it was like a forum that employees could uh, gripe about work or say whatever they wanted. So sure enough, what do you think happened? One of the supervisors forced one of the employees to give up the password. And when the supervisor went in and looked at what was being written, they actually found threats of violence and sexual harassment type of notes and fired the, the people that started the uh, account. And these people sued and they said, I want my job back. And they said to the judge, judge, we had password protected. This supervisor was never even supposed to see it. It was for employees only. And the judge said, doesn't matter if there's one password or a thousand passwords. There's no expectation of privacy when you put something out on the internet and your audience wow. should know that, Jim. Wow. Wow. That is uh, very sobering. <laughs> yeah. Time is creeping up on us. Uh, if you would, what, give us, leave us with this. Uh, in the world of employment law, uh, what trends or changes do you foresee in the near future that HR leaders should be prepared for? What's coming around the bend that, that we should be looking out for? Well, look, everybody's talking about artificial intelligence, right? AI. Sure, sure. And, and that has, you know, that, that has not stopped at the walls and doors of employment law. It, it still gets into the world of employment law. And you got to be careful of that. Um, that use of it will increase in the future. But what I will say, and the reason we still need to be vigilant and have and conduct training on not only social media and AI, um, there are still people like Archie Bunker out there, right? You remember all the family? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so Archie Bunkers do exist. I thought they went. I thought that those types of people went away a long time ago. Um, but I found in my career uh, these, you know, racist. Um, ageist and and just bad people that that have these certain you know feelings towards other people it will not go away whether it's age sex race religion disability and so sure. forth and we sure. got to watch out for that in the future and that's why another reason why uh, to answer your very first question why i put this book out and why i uh, i'm trying to promote training from the employee lawyer's side okay very good. Very good. Um, we could go on and on, <laughs> which I have no doubt. But if someone wanted to get more information from you specifically and to buy your book, um, how can they find you online? Well, I am online. I have a uh, website, uh, employeerelationssolutions.com. And anybody could email me. Um, I answer every email. Uh, M. Grable at EmployeeRelationsSolutions.com. And the spelling of my name is uh, M for Matthew, Grable, G-R-A, B like boy, E-L-L. -L. And I'm happy to uh, always answer emails and discuss with anybody. 
And to make it easier for your audience, I'm going to leave a link in the podcast description. So look at the podcast description and you'll see information there, how you can get more, how you can contact him. Uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, sobering <laughs> on a lot of on a lot of fronts. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being on the Jim Stroud podcast. Jim, thanks for having me. You're doing a great job. Enjoy it. Well, my time is up. I thank you for yours. I'll see you again real soon right here with a brand new episode of the Jim Stroud Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to reach out to me. I can be reached by email at jimstroud at jimstroud.com. And one last favor, if I may ask, please rate this podcast. Uh, five stars is preferred, <laughs> but uh, please uh, comment uh, with your honest opinion. I really appreciate that. All right. Okay, until next time, bye-bye. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So, come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.